EBC. How are we doing? Good. I'm good too. Thanks for asking. Um, okay, so Jesus is a weird dude, right? Like Jesus is super weird. And I, I don't say that to offend anyone. I don't say that to be flippant. I don't say that to be irreverent. In fact, I say that out of utter reverence for the holiness of Jesus, that he is a weird, weird dude. And the reason why Jesus is weird is because he is so unlike us. Jesus is so different to us. He's so unique from us. He's so much greater than us that often when we look at Jesus' life or listen to Jesus' words, we have to take a step back and say, that dude is strange. He's weird. He looks absolutely nothing like us. And before you get too offended at me calling him weird, let me just explain to you how Jesus is different from us. The first thing is that Jesus is utterly and completely selfless. I want you to think about this. Jesus was king of the universe, seated on the throne, reigning over all. And he selflessly left his throne behind to come to earth, to take on flesh, to become a nobody carpenter that would ultimately be killed by the people he created. That's selfless. We are the kinds of people who crave and seek after power as much as possible. But Jesus gave it up to come here and take on flesh and leave his throne behind. Jesus was righteous in and of himself. How many of you were righteous this week? Okay, four people laughed, which means well done to the rest of you. Please teach me how you do it. I guarantee you that none of us were righteous this week. In fact, I would go as far as to say that we were probably pretty wicked this week. I guarantee you that we all did said and thought things this week that we would be embarrassed and ashamed for other people to know about, correct? But not Jesus. Jesus woke up in the morning righteous. He went to sleep at bed, uh, he went to sleep in bed at night righteous, having done everything perfectly, having thought good and righteous thoughts, having done good and righteous deeds and having said good and righteous things, loving people perfectly, glorifying God in everything he did. He was righteous in and of himself whereas we are wicked in and of ourselves. Jesus loved everyone with the fullness of the love that he had to offer. Did anyone here love everyone this week with the fullness of the love that you had to offer? Again, only four of us. Jeez, what are we doing wrong that everyone else... You see, the reason why I know that not all of us have loved everyone to the fullness of the love we have to offer this week is because most of us in this room drove a car this week, and most of us drove that car in South Africa, which means that most of us in this room did not love everyone with the fullness of the love that we have to offer. Oh, there's the agreement I was looking for. But perhaps the most important difference between us and Jesus for the context of today's sermon is his unwavering, unshakable faith in his Father. Unwavering, unshakable faith. Let me create my argument for you here. Let's think about Jesus' life. He was born in a foreign city to parents who had no wealth and absolutely no influence. He had no family or friends. He was literally born in a manger, which is where animals get fed from, which means that there was one really confused cow that night who went up to the manger, tried to take a bite of Jesus, and Joseph had to, hey, it's my child. None of that, cow, all right. <laughs> At the circumcision of Jesus, Mary and Joseph offered two pigeons as a sacrifice for Mary's purification. Now, this is important because in Leviticus 12, verse 7 to 8, we find out that Israelites were supposed to offer a calf or a lamb uh, as, as sacrifice for their purification. 
But if the Israelites could not afford a calf or a lamb, they were to give to pigeons. This further proves that Jesus did not have wealth or affluence. In fact, Jesus lived in abject poverty. In Matthew 8 verse 20, Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In Luke 8, verses 2 to 3, we hear that Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna were the people who provided for Jesus out of their own means. We know that Jesus preached from borrowed boats. He multiplied borrowed food. He rode on a borrowed donkey and was ultimately buried in a borrowed grave. Jesus did not have material wealth here on earth. And this is all solidified by Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his second letter to the Corinthians, where he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. On earth, Jesus was in abject poverty. Now, I want you to hold that in your mind as we read this. It's from Matthew. It says this, Jesus preaches this sermon. He says, Therefore I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life. Abject poverty. Abject poverty. Do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They never toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's weird. It's strange that a man living in abject poverty would say to a group of people, Do not be anxious about what you will eat or drink. The Lord will provide. Remember, Jesus had no assured form of income, no guaranteed meal. He had no shelter or home. He had no social capital that he could draw from. And yet he was content with all that he had and that all that he would receive. Because he has unwavering and unshakable faith in who God says he is. The fact that Jesus was not anxious despite his abject poverty has nothing to do with the world, but everything to do with who he believes God is. He believes that God is a provider, Jehovah Jireh. And because God is who he says he is, we can have faith that he will do what he says he will do. And I'm not just talking about the faith that our modern contemporary culture has told us to have. You know, a a holy hoping for the best. You know, the kind of cultivation of an optimistic outlook on life with some spirituality sprinkled over the top. A mindless stab in the dark. Let's just do it and see what happens. A kind of cosmic crossing of fingers and hoping that things will work out. That's not faith. Hear me out. 
That is stupidity. Doing something when you are not assured of the outcome is not a smart thing to do. Oh, but Mitchell, faith is believing in things that we can't see. I know that. But it's also believing in things we've already heard. We may not be able to see God, but we very clearly have heard from Him. And so faith is not about like taping a smile over your frown and acting like everything's okay. Faith is not about hoping for the best, taking a leap of faith and hoping that God catches you. It's reading and meditating on the truth that God reveals about himself and acting accordingly. Faith is not about guessing or trying and hoping. Faith is a reasoned and directed meditation on the goodness of God and allowing your actions to be the result of that reasoned and directed meditation. Because what God says to be true of Himself is indeed true. Therefore, when we put our faith in God, we are not hoping for the best. We are acting out of the knowledge that the best has already been completed. And that we are living based on the solid and assured word that God is our Jehovah Jireh. And this is what allowed Jesus to be so generous. He believed that no matter how much I give away, there is enough for me. No matter how much I give of myself, no matter how much I give of my stuff, there is enough of me. Why? Because God says there is. And so we've entitled this new series, Giverosity. And the reason why I wanted to entitle it Giverosity is because I believe that we've distorted the word generosity somewhat in our contemporary culture. When we speak about the generosity of God, we speak about us receiving His generosity. And that's not bad, okay? We must receive what He gives us. But when it ends there, it's not faith, it's idolatry. You see, God has been giverous with us so that we could be giverous with those around us. And the thing that stops us from being giverous is the belief that He has not given enough. Is the belief that if I am generous with my stuff, I will go without. So how was Jesus so sure? How was Jesus so strong in His belief that God would provide for Him? I believe it's because Jesus grew up hearing this psalm. Psalm 104. I believe that when Jesus preached the sermon about looking at the birds and the lilies, I believe that Psalm 104 was in the back of his mind the whole time. And so we're going to read through Psalm 104 this morning. And my prayer is that the same mindset that this psalm created in the mind of Jesus will be given to us so that we can be fearlessly generous with those around us because our God is fiercely generous to us. Amen? So it's quite a long Thing. So I'm not going to read it all at once. We're going to read and then talk and then read and then talk. Is that cool? It starts off like this. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass. 
so that they might not again cover the earth. Now, I really wish I could dig into this first part of the scripture as deeply as I would like to, but unfortunately, I only have you for 45 minutes, and so I'm not going to dig into it as deeply as I wanted to. What I am going to do is make one point from this scripture, which I believe captures what the whole passage is trying to say, and it starts in verse 1. It says, bless the Lord, O my soul. If you want to flip over and read verse 35 of this psalm quickly, how does it end? How does it end? Bless the Lord, O my soul. It starts with bless the Lord, O my soul, and it ends with bless the Lord, O my soul. Now, when we read poetry, we need to understand that when this function is used, the psalmist or the poet is trying to say that the whole point of this poem is that by the time you are done reading it, your overarching desire will be to bless the Lord, O my soul. And it actually is translated elsewhere in the NLT as let all that I am praise the Lord. And I did check with the good Reverend Megan Braithwaite that this was a faithful translation of the Hebrew. She says they both mean the same thing. Let all that I am praise the Lord. Let all that I am praise the Lord. What the psalmist is trying to do here is say, once you've finished reading this, you will have no choice but to let all that you are praise the Lord. He wants us to see how good and generous and kind and loving God is so that once we are done, we praise Him with all that we have, not just our Sundays, not just our Wednesday nights. Let all that I am praise the Lord. Amen? So the first observation about generosity that I want to make from this passage is that God is powerfully giverous. He's not just normally generous. He's not like a guy who has a couple of things and he gives them away. He is powerfully generous, powerfully generous. And the way that I think we can make this argument the strongest is it says that he stretches the heavens like a tent, like a tent. He stretches the heavens like a tent. Do you know how big the heavens are? No? I'll tell you then. How many stars are there in our Milky Way galaxy? Does anyone know? One billion. Very good. Amazing. There are one billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. How many galaxies do you think there are? To be honest, I don't know. But what I can tell you is that there are 200 trillion galaxies in the observable universe. Did you hear what I said? Observable universe. That means what we can see. There are 200 trillion galaxies. So I did some maths. You're welcome. And that means that there are 200 sextillion stars in the observable galaxies of the world. That's what that number looks like, in case you were wondering. It's unfathomable. And God stretched them like a tent. Like a tent. We have a tent that my wife and I use when we do music festivals, and literally you just like pop it up. I don't know if anyone's ever used one of those tents. You literally just pick it up, and it's a tent. It's amazing for people who suck at outdoors like we do. This tent is just big enough to cover us, and in fact, when we stand up, we are bigger than the tent. We can also pack up the tent when we want to. We could also set it on fire if we so desired. That tent is small in comparison to us, right? 
God stretches the 200 sextillion stars of the, of the whole lot of galaxies that we have in our world like a tent. Does that give you some insight into the, mag, the magnitude of this God that we worship? He is magnificent. He is majestic. He is huge. He is unsearchable. He is glorious. And so when we speak of his generosity, we need to understand he's not just a guy who has some stuff that he likes to give away. He is the creator of the universe, and you know that he did it without even lifting a finger. How did he create the world? (laughs) Right? (laughs) He spoke, and we have three billion trillion galaxies out of his mouth. The only thing I've ever created with my words is deep conflict. <laughs> but God created universes just by, just by speaking. Just by speaking. But the danger at this point is for us, yes, we will. We'll worship God with all that we have. But we'll do it because we're scared of him at this point, right? Like, oh my goodness, if I don't, he'll kill me. So yes, God, you're cool, you know. But that is not why God wants us to worship Him. That's not how God wants us to worship Him. The rest of the psalm goes on to describe that He's not just powerful, but He's deeply, deeply generous. And because He's powerful and generous, you can be assured that you will be taken care of in this life. It's not like God really wants to help you but can't. It's that He really wants to help you and is overwhelmingly able to. And that is why Jesus has the faith that he's able to have, because he trusts that God is powerful, but that he's also generous. Amen? And before I read on to the rest of the psalm, there's a point that I want to make. Often when we read in the Bible about animals and creatures and, and you know, created things, we read about how man has dominion over those animals, right? There's often an emphasis on man being prioritized in, in the creative order above animals. And that's very true and very important. But what we need to know about this psalm is that the psalmist doesn't do that this time. He wants us to see that God provides for all creatures equally. He wants us to see some really cool and really important things about how if he's going to provide for even the smallest of animal, how much more will he provide for his treasured possessions, his people? Amen? All right, it says this, You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing amongst the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. If we cast our minds back to verse 6 of the same scripture, it says this, you covered the deep, you covered it with the deep as with a garment, right? So if we cast our minds back to Genesis 1, we'll know that there was a time when creation was completely submerged by water, right? Completely uninhabitable. We could not live here because we would die, right? And so our generous God springs forth valleys into the mountains. He separates the water from the land in such a way that it becomes hospitable for all creatures to live and live abundantly. Notice how, notice how the earth is no longer completely submerged so that we would drown or have no land to dwell on. And notice how it's also not a complete wasteland. 
void of the water that we need to quench our thirst and to live. But God created a world that is perfectly balanced between land and water so that we would have somewhere to live and something to drink. What an amazingly generous God. But it goes further than that. You agree that the oceans are big, right? Anyone disagree? I'm open to debate on this one. The oceans are huge. And if God had just left us the oceans to drink from, all we'd need to do is heat it up and it would be drinkable, right? It's not a big deal. He's not asking that much of us. But he doesn't. He sends springs into the mountains of drinkable water. God wants to protect us from having to boil all of our water by generously and lovingly and kindly providing perfectly drinkable water for us on top of the generous provision of the oceans that he's already given us. How amazing is this God? How much does he love us that he wouldn't just make us drink from the ocean, but he would give us pure water to drink from too? Isn't that amazing? And you'll also see here that it's not just humans that are provided for, but the animals as well. And not just the animals that are useful to man. He speaks about how even the wild donkeys. Now, there's a word even there, which I think is really funny. I think God's trying to make a point by saying even the wild donkeys quench their thirst there, right? What he's trying to say is wild donkeys are overwhelmingly useless, There is no use for man with a wild donkey. You see, the difference between wild donkeys and domesticated donkeys is that domesticated donkeys will do what you ask them to do. They'll carry what you ask them to carry. They'll eat what you ask them to eat. Whereas a wild donkey is so stubborn and and, and so hard-headed that anything that seems dangerous or onerous to them will make them flee. They are useless. I watched some really funny videos in preparation for this about wild donkeys and humans trying to domesticate them. If you're bored this week, check it out. (laughs) They are useless to us. And yet, despite their utter uselessness, even they quench their thirst in the water. Isn't that amazing? How generous is God that he would provide water even for the most useless of creatures? And if he's willing to provide water even for the most useless of creature, how much more is he going to provide for his treasured possession, for his holy nation, his royal priesthood, his chosen race? How much more will he provide for you? Amen? You'll also notice that nature is provided for. Notice how it says that the the rain comes down to water the mountains. So what's happening here is the psalmist is saying that there are lower valleys that are close to the ground where the trees and the grass get their nutrients and their, their sustenance from the rivers, from these springs that gushed forth, right? So trees and stuff close to the ground get their water from rivers, but the mountains are too high. So the trees that are up there cannot reach the rivers for their sustenance. And so what does God do? He sends rain for them. Even the mountains... God sends rain for them. So he sends springs for the, low, the, 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 the earth on the bottom and sends rain for the earth on the top. And where does he send it from? His house. <laughs> God sends rain to this earth, not from an independent water source created for our sustenance. He gives us water from his home. <laughs> 
how good is our God that He doesn't want us to just enjoy random rain from some random area. He wants us to have His water. He wants to share His water from His house with us, His people. Guys, when it rains, don't take it for granted. That's not coming from a random place. God's sending it to us from His house. He's saying, I want to share my home with you. I want to share what I have with you from my abode. Isn't that mind-blowing? And you'll notice that all the earth is satisfied with the fruits of God's work. All the earth is satisfied with the fruits of God's work. And I think that this works in two ways. When it says that the earth is satisfied with the fruits of his work, I think that they're saying that they're satisfied with what they're receiving from God, but they're also satisfied with what they're producing for God. Do you see that? Have I gone too far there, or do you think that's okay? Do you think that makes sense? You see, nature loves what God has to give to it. Nature cries out for what God has to give to it. And then it it gratefully and abundantly produces more fruit for God. If only we could live in such a way as well. How often are we dissatisfied with what God has given us? How often are we dissatisfied with with what God has abundantly gifted to us. And even further than that, how often are we dissatisfied with the work that he calls us to do for him? Can I tell you that you're not in your job because you need one? Can I tell you that you're not working where you're working because it was the only place you could find? You're there because God wants you to produce work for him. God wants you to produce fruit for his glory and he wants you to be satisfied with it. I'm not saying that if you're being abused at work or if you're being taken advantage of, you should act like everything's cool. There's a difference between being unhappy with the way that you're being treated and being unhappy with what you're producing. May we be a people who work hard because we know God has abundantly provided for us so that he could abundantly provide for others as well. You see, nature's a cycle. And we're going to read a bit about that now. It says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen his heart. Notice how God causes the grass to grow to feed the livestock that help the man cultivate the earth, so that he can feed the livestock that helps him cultivate the earth. Do you see what's happening? Do you see in this verse how the entire cycle of God's creative genius is playing out? He causes the grass to grow so that we can cultivate it with the help of our livestock, so that we can feed the livestock to help us cultivate the earth as he causes the grass to grow so that we can feed our livestock and they can help. Do you see what's happening? It's amazing. If everyone operates in the way that God created the world to operate, it's perfectly abundant. When we live in the way that God created the world to be lived in, there is enough for everyone. There is enough for everyone. And I I believe that what we should feel when reading the scripture is two things. Number one, we should be humbled. You cause the grass to grow. You, you, him. You are unable, you guys, me, we are unable to cause the grass to grow 
and make food for ourselves. If God did not generously provide the food that we eat, we would not eat. If God did not generously provide the water that we drink, we would not drink. We are incapable of continuing to live from moment to moment without the intervention and generous loving kindness shown to us by the God of the universe. We should be so humbled by our utter dependence on Him that we should fall to the ground and say, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Amen? But if we can't even provide for our physical needs, what makes us think that we can provide with our, for our own spiritual needs? You see, God's actually creating a picture here. Notice how He uses the pictures of wine, bread, and oil. He uses the pictures of wine, bread, and oil. Does that, is it ringing any bells? Ringing any bells? You see, as we are humbled by the fact that we cannot provide for ourselves physically, we should also cast our minds to the fact that we could not be Christian without God. It blows my mind how many of us often believe that we can be Christians without God. Doesn't make any, it, it's, so, it's so devoid of any logic and any thought at all. How is it that you could be a Christian without the person who you're claiming to worship? How does that make sense? Doesn't. You cannot be a Christian without God. And how can I say that? I can say that because we are sinful and broken people who are deserving of the righteous judgment of God. Because of our fallenness and our brokenness and our sin, we should rightfully be separated from Him and, and given an eternity in hell as a punishment for what we've done. But God generously provided His Son, Jesus Christ, to come to the earth so that He could shed His blood on the cross to wash us clean of our sin, so that His body would be broken on our behalf, so that we could be set free of sin, so we could be cleansed and welcomed back into our relationship with the Holy God, so we can now say that we are saved by the blood of Jesus and the broken body of Jesus, which we're going to celebrate just now. How? by drinking wine and bread. This verse points to so much more than just wine and bread. It points to Jesus Christ. He's saying, yeah, you can't cause the grass to grow, but you also can't cause righteousness to happen in yourself. You need Jesus to come and be the living water that once you drink, you will never thirst again. To be the bread of life that once you eat of him, you will never hunger again. God generously gave you bread and wine in the form of his son, Jesus. And then oil is used all the way throughout the Bible as an image of the Holy Spirit. Yep, that's right. The whole Godhead is in this one passage. Isn't that amazing? And it says that we are given oil to make our faces shine. There's another verse earlier on in Psalms where they pray that their faces would radiate with the glory of God. Because once you have seen God, once you have been revealed, once God has been revealed to you, your face should light up and it should shine for His glory in the world. What this means is that when the anointing oil of the Holy Spirit has washed over you, He comes to live inside you and daily He transforms you from one degree of glory to another. So you can look more and more like Jesus on a daily basis and in looking more like Jesus, your face is going to shine and the world's going to say, wow, what is different about you? You can say, I've got the, the holy anointing on my face. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Also, 
God gives us wine to gladden our hearts. I think it's cool that he doesn't just give us food completely for its function. Do you know what a grace it is to us that we can enjoy what food tastes like? That's just a gift that God has given to us. We could just, he could have just given us like a thing that we just take and then we find. But he, he created an experience for us that, that we can enjoy and love because he's kind to us and he's generous to us. Amen? The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. Let's just pause there. Google rock badgers. They're adorable. It'll change your life. Okay, let's carry on. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens, and man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. God has not just been generous to us by giving us things that we can use. He's also been generous to us in creating a cycle or a rhythm of life that is useful to us as we gather what he has given us. It's incredible how while we are asleep in the comfort of our homes at night, the predatory animals like lions and leopards are out in the fields hunting their prey. That is mind-blowing to me, that God created the universe so that lions could eat their food in safety and we could eat our food safe from them. They go out at night, they hunt their prey, they eat, they go to sleep in the day as we leave our houses to go and collect our food before we come back at night and then the lions leave. Do you see how God has created a rhythm for us to gather what he's given us safely? Isn't that amazing? But we are all too guilty of changing and distorting this rhythm that God has created. Can I say that you, if you are not making time for rest in your lives, if you are working at times that you should be resting, you are opening yourself up to being devoured by creatures who prey on us. Working in the times that God has set aside for our rest will result in certain death for us. And can I further say that the only time that we will work when we should be resting is if we don't trust that God will provide for us. We work when we shouldn't because we do not trust that if we take this break, we will be provided for. And so if we're burnt out today, God is generously offering you the chance to take a break and he's offering you the chance not just to take a break, but to take a break with the full knowledge that he will provide. Amen? O oh Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable. Living things, both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. You see, God provides the ocean, not just for us, but for the fish and the sea creatures. And not only did he provide a space for them to live so that it would be easy for us to hunt them, 
He also created it as a joyful place to them. The Leviathan's playing. The Leviathan plays in his house. He loves it. God created a house for him that he absolutely adores. He's rejoicing. He's enjoying God's creation. How often we turn God's good gift into a, into a source of disdain in our lives rather than a source of joy and playfulness. When last did you go outside and just look around and joyfully proclaim, this is amazing? You ever just looked at nature? It's unbelievable what God spoke into being. Let's enjoy what God has given us. Let's enjoy it. But on top of the ocean being a house for fish and a place for us to get food from, God has also given us the sea as a, as a mode of travel. See, the ships are passing by. God has generously provided for us in the ocean a way for us to navigate from one country to the next so that we can enjoy the creation that he's made for us. He doesn't just want us to be fed. He doesn't want us to just have what we need. He wants us to be joyful. He wants us to expand, and he gives us all the tools we need to do that. Do you see how generously he has provided for us? These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. I get the sense from this part of the verse that nature is satisfied with what God gives. We just read in Jesus' sermon from Matthew that the birds don't store their food in storehouses. They don't store their food in barns. They simply go out gather what God has provided for the day, go home, and the next day, repeat. They leave their nests every day, confident that God will once again provide. They don't gather more than what they need. They don't steal from other creatures. They gather what God has provided, and they come back the next day in full faith that it will happen again. You see, this cycle only works if we fall in line. When you start storing up things for yourself, you are robbing someone else of what God has provided for them. When you store up things for yourself, you are robbing other people of experiencing the providence of God in His generous creation. When you store up things for yourself, you are breaking the cycle and God's genius can no longer play out uninhibited. We get angry with God about poverty. We get angry with God about inequality. We get angry with God about how some people have more than others. How much are you giving away? How much are you generously giving of yourself? Maybe we should check our own hearts before we start knocking God for poverty. He created the cycle to work perfectly. We broke it. He generously provides everything we need and can I say this? Anything above what you need, God has given it to you for someone else. God gives us what we need and all the abundance is for those around us. Amen? <laughs> Finally, God doesn't just generously give us what we need for life and life abundance. God gives us life. God is the very reason we have life. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take your breath, they die. 
and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. Can we get this straight? We are alive because God wills us to be so. You are alive because God wants you to be alive. See this, when he says that when you take your breath away, they die, that word breath comes from the Hebrew word ruach. Okay, I checked that with Miss Braithwaite as well. Very happy. Ruach, this is a word that is used all the way throughout the Bible to describe breath and the Holy Spirit, which means that when God breathed his life into Adam, he ruached his life. It was more than just the oxygen that he put into Adam. It was his own life. Jesus breathed his own life into us. And he continues moment to moment to breathe his life into us. And so if you are breathing now, it's because Jesus is generously giving you breath. Every moment that you continue to breathe air, you are experiencing the generosity of God who is giving his breath to you. And he could take it away like that, which means that you are alive now because he wants you to be You are alive now because he desires for you to be alive. And I want you to ask yourself, why? Are you alive so that you can come to church on Sundays? I really hope not. You are alive because the bread and the wine have been broken for you and the spirit has been placed in you and you are now alive to be a picture of Jesus to an onlooking world who really needs him. He really, really needs him. He has ruached his life into you and he continues to ruach his life into you. His breath gives us life. He has generously given us more than just life itself, but also the things we need to sustain it. May the, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles? Who touches the mountains and they smoke? I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let all that I am praise him. Notice how he ends this by saying, God, I know that you are powerful. I know that you are generous and loving and kind and that you are the creative force behind this world. And because I know that that is true of you, I'm gonna let all that I am praise you. And we let all that we are praise him. How? By obeying him. By living in the world as it was created to be. So the God who has been giverous to us We must reflect him on earth by being giverous to those around us. Please be enamored by the generosity of God. Please receive what he has given you, but do not let it end there because the cycle was not meant to include us keeping things. The cycle was meant for us to take what we need and give the rest away in the the same way that God gave us his son. We need to live life that says, God, because all that I am comes from you, I will surrender all that I am and all that I have to you. Because you are a generous God, I can trust you by being a generous follower. There is enough because he is enough. Let's pray together. Father God, we want to thank you for your generous heart.
We want to thank you for so abundantly pouring out from your own home everything that we need for life and abundance. We want to thank you that we can trust that you are our Jehovah Jireh and that you will provide for us. And we can show that we trust you by being generous with what we have. Thank you for breathing your life into us. Thank you for not just breathing your life into us, but for sustaining the very life that you've breathed into us. Help us to trust you and live with the same faith that Jesus had, that we can say we won't be anxious because our God will provide. In your good name, amen.